There's actually a BLS too. Yes. A Bureau of Labor Labor Statistics. Yes. Yes. There is not, as far as I know, a BLT, but that would be my favorite bureau if it existed. Uh, Maybe a a, a mutton tomato lettuce sandwich because that would be a Miracle Max thing, though. So Mm I'm just just saying. And some people even got that reference. Uh, If you didn't, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm sad for you, though. And we're, I was going to say back, we are, we're back. Welcome to an exciting episode of the Personal Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure, where we say- Once more unto the breach, my friend. uh, Else close the wall up with our English dead. Yes, Yes, we reversed roles here, I like that. Yeah, yeah. We are uh, famous worldwide um, across two or three people while traveling. Right. We have have independent verification, and by independent, I mean Mm -hmm. by those same people that were traveling, and that's how we know that we were famous worldwide. People knew us everywhere. Um, Not not everywhere, but, you know. So Listened to by ones of people. Yes. Uh, If you understand binary, then we have a lot of listeners. Maybe. I wasn't listening, so I'm, I'm not really sure. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. And to begin the program in the most exciting way possible, as is usual, we shall begin with disclosures. We shall say them in monotone and very no, quickly no. so no one can understand what we're saying for the next 30 minutes. And then we shall begin talking about the economy. No, no, we won't. But we do have to say some disclosures. Firstly, we are both bald, bearded. Uh, people, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to go so far as to say gentlemen. Uh, we, we, um, neither of us were born into nobility. So we are bald, bearded. We like puns. We're a little pedantic, and that doesn't have anything to do with your feet. See, that's how pedantic we are. And only one person understood that one. I think um, maybe just me. We tell very bad jokes regularly. And then laugh at them ourselves. So those are all very important disclosures to get out of the way before we begin the regulatory disclosures. This program is called the Personal Wealth Coach. There is a firm registered with the SEC to give investment advice called the Personal Wealth Coach. And it's the same people in the program and at the firm. Just because the firm's registered to give advice with the SEC doesn't mean that the government thinks that we are golden children or any other kind of glowing term. There's no approval uh, implied in any way. They haven't anointed us. Um, I'm not sure that that's the verbiage they wish us to be saying about it, but it'll do. We are not the anointed ones, at least not by them. Okay, uh, next up. Just because the firm's registered to give advice doesn't mean we can do that on the air. Why? Because there's a specific legal meaning for investment advice, not financial advice. Anybody can give financial advice. Their investment advice has to be given by somebody who's acting in uh, as a fiduciary. They're acting in the best interest of their client, putting their, them way ahead, giving full disclosure of all conflict of interest and all fees and keeping privacy and all that. We can't do that on the air. We don't know everybody that's listening. Uh, all Maybe we do. Maybe we know you all. That would, but then we wouldn't still be able to because if by chance on a given day somebody turns on their radio by accident and is listening, we violated all the privacy laws. 
So we can't give advice on it. What are we talking about then? We can't give advice on the air. We're educating. Hopefully, we're going to teach you something in this program. So this is an educational program, and it's not paid for. It is not paid commercial advertisement. We haven't paid for this thing since 1997, and they haven't paid us to do it. There's some kind of weird communism going on here. It sounds like public radio to me, but we do advertise on the station, uh, as does the station. We generally advertise for the radio program, and I believe that we're getting a massive discount on our advertisements just because we've been advertising for so long. So, um, I, Senator, there is no quid pro quo. If it is advertising, we're not doing a very effective job because we're basically telling you what's going on in the world and hopefully teaching you enough to make decisions better. Uh, it, we do get people that listen to the radio program that use our services professionally. That's a very kind of them, and um, I, maybe it's because they really didn't listen very long. Maybe they didn't hear the us talking. Maybe it was somebody else. And anyway, we we do occasionally get custom from this. Um, you have a um, a wonderful disclosure to give, and I I won't speak about it in any way to make it stand out from the rest. Wait, I just did see that. It's like reverse psychology for words. Okay, go ahead. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. I, I have to complete that by we do warranty and guarantee um, for at least twice the value of unsaid information being incomplete. Mm. There we said. That, that was our final disclosure, and now we're on to talk about uh, much less sane and rational things than that. Um, but uh, I think we should get to the question from John. What do you think? Sure. All right. John has an uh, email, and we broke tradition this week. There's no Wall Street Journal. So we're, I'm, it's like one of my feet lost it, the earth beneath it, like I was stepping forward. Wait, that's just cold walking. Never mind, it didn't have to do, with, to do with you at all, John. Thank you for the question. His question, subject is Fed Bank metric responsibility. During a recent show, you mentioned that federal federal banks have specific responsibility responsibility as to certain U.S. economic metrics. Um, uh, it says uh, the Fed, Atlanta Fed does GDP. What are the other Fed Bank metric responsibilities? Okay. So let me give some background to those of you who, if presuming that anyone's listening, um, uh, that haven't been following the news lately. The um, Congress is not passing the budget laws. Without a budget, we can't spend money at the governmental level. And it looks like the government's going to shut down in uh, uh, at uh, Sunday at midnight because we don't have a budget. So uh, the government won't continue to function as normally. There will be Federal employees that are working without pay, federal employees not working, uh, federal employees that are working with pay, there's a very few of those, and federal employees not working and not being paid. So all of that is coming up in the very near future if Congress doesn't pass a budget. One of the responsibilities that government has been given by government, because we are government, because we elected them, is to measure things like unemployment and how much money people are making in general and how much 
things cost and whether inflation's in the consumption expenditure or the, the basket of goods side or all that stuff is governmental. They're truly bureaucrats. But we mentioned several times over, well, quite a lot more than several times over the life of the program that the Federal Reserve also keeps some data. It's very different data that the Federal Reserve keeps. Federal Reserve is going to monitor things like how much money is in the economy, how much money is in the bank versus in cash. Um, they've been given that responsibility because their job is to deal with money supply issues. If there's too much or too little, too much moving around or not enough moving around, it's all about inflation and deflation. So they're watching how much money we have around. So the Atlanta Fed looks ahead using the data that comes from the, the government. So on the GDP, the Atlanta Fed is giving their expectation for the future rather than their measurement of the past. So the government is looking at what's already happened. And sometimes this is where we expect things to be. Mostly not that last part, though. Mostly the government's not guessing what the economy is going to do in the future. When we talk about who's got an estimate for the future, we talk about Moody's and we talk about independent research firms and the Federal Reserve. And one of the Federal Reserve districts chose that responsibility. That is the Atlanta Fed. If you go to the St. Louis Fed, you get a a different set of data. These districts of banks have a bunch of economists that are working there and people that are working for the economists are gauging data. So at the FRED, we have a bunch of other stuff, mostly predictive as well, but they're covering things like from the Census Bureau and um, they've got a news alert out there at the FRED right now. Uh, U.S. government shutdown could delay some FRED data because Almost all of the data that the Federal Reserve gives out is using government data to get to where it is. They don't have teams of people calling people to see who's employed or not. That's not what they do. They're looking at, all right, with this data, what do we expect the future to be? The government actually employs people at the Census Bureau to call and say, are you working? How many people live in your house? Those are things that we say, all right, we need to know that because we need to know how many members of Congress a state need to have. And it also helps us to understand working conditions. You can obviously tell them, I don't want to tell you. It's not mandatory. But usually they find a group of people and they call them. And it's generally uh, random, but sometimes it's the same group of people that they call every time. So there's other types of uh groups that do, um, you know, purchasing managers index. Well, that's not going to be government or the Fed. Those are people at an independent firm that's calling out to say what's going on elsewhere. Um, wait a minute. Doesn't the Labor Department do the PMI? Is it the BEA? Yeah. Never mind what I just said. The, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, they, they're the ones that call a group of people that have identified themselves as being purchasing managers. Um, and this is something, uh, there's occasionally there will be an email that shows up in a business executive's in, inbox that, from the Federal Reserve that says something like, hey, we're looking for volunteers to sit on a board or volunteers to be called by us regularly, quarterly, monthly, whatever to get an opinion. There's no pay generally offered for that, but that's how the government does it. Uh, the PMI is not prepared 
Are you talking about the PCE or PMI? The PMI. That's the BEA, right? No. Who Institute is it? for Supply Management. Okay, so that's a private institution. I was right the first time. Yeah. I changed my mind, and I shouldn't have. Uh, I should have. I should have looked it up. Yes. Actually, so, there's two PMIs that come out. Exactly. S&P Global does one, yeah, and, and the Institute for Supply Management does another one. Yeah, I shouldn't have changed my mind. I, you know, it's <sighs> basic error on my part. Shameful that I didn't know the source of all my data off the top of my head. I know I hmm. shouldn't have guessed, uh, but I had it right the first time. So what that means is that. Even even when we're talking about surveys from the Census Department on unemployment, um, that's not going to happen. We're not going to know. Uh, we get other data on that from the states, uh, from their unemployment departments at the state level that feeds up. But that's much delayed because believe I can be very. Go ahead. I can be very cryptic here and say, but the PCE is from the BEA, right? But the PMI is from the ISM, right? Yes, absolutely. That makes me sound really smart. Right. Uh, yes. And S&P Global isn't necessarily a global company. That's the name of the company. So, yes. So, yes, we it makes us sound very smart to, to throw those acronyms out there. What is it? It's kind of like doctors. If they just read a blood test to you word verbatim, they would sound very smart because they're saying a bunch of stuff that you don't say every day. The reality is that you're paying the doctor to check your data. And in this case, you're paying the government to check the data. The government is being literally paid by you and me to check this data because it's important. Without it, the doctor's not going to know if you're if you're having uh, you know signs of cancer or things in your blood that you need to know about. The tests are still well, wait, we're not even running the tests. That's the point, is that in a government shutdown, there's other stuff that's going on. How does it help the economy to know what's going on right now? What would you say is a good answer to that? Well, I think it's really important that the Fed not just guess at where inflation is and what uh, the productivity is, yeah. all the elements that cause future inflation. Or what about, what about need, a they purchasing have, manager themselves? Right. They need to have advance warning. and. It's a good idea to know in advance what the economy is likely to do in the near future. And it's been really rough doing that, even with the good reporting because from the, the BEA and the DOL. Things and the, are weird right now. There's actually a BLS, too. Yes. A Bureau, Bureau of, of Labor, Labor Statistics. Yes. yes. There is uh, not, as far as I know, a BLT, but that would be my favorite bureau if it existed. Uh, maybe yeah. a, a, a mutton tomato lettuce sandwich because that would be a miracle max thing though so i'm mm -hmm. ju just saying and some people even got that reference uh, if you didn't don't worry about it uh i i'm sad for you though one of the things that um is a little bothersome to me right now is relatively few members of congress because of the almost perfect division between the democrats and republicans in congress is effectively going to shut down the government and that relatively few um they identify, they're all Republicans, they identify themselves as conservatives, although I think they're better termed radicals. They claim that they want to reduce spending by the government, but they have not put forward a reduced spending budget. They just Correct. object to the one that's there. They're not going and to also, vote for the existing one, but they have not introduced a differing one. Yes, and they also want to cut off all aid to Ukraine. And interestingly to me, is I've been following their their speeches and, and comments to the press and so on. They're very, very similar to the same data, the same information that's being put out by the Russians. It's, it's almost as if they are 
uh, and I don't know that I wouldn't say that they are this, but they are they're basically parroting a lot of things that Putin has said, and I uh, it makes me sort of wonder. I, I have a, a a kind of a cool observation to make. Part of the job of any economist is to measure demographics. What are people believing and doing? What groups of people are doing what and why? And one of the fun things to watch economically, I suppose on the political scientist viewpoint it happens as well, is when parties totally shift in their core beliefs to trade back and forth. Okay, So the, the party of Jim Crow was the Democrat party. It's not that's not me insulting. That's just history. Okay, so they were definitely not pro minority. That shifted in the the following twenty years or so after civil rights. Okay, the Republicans were the party of be careful about the Soviet Union to a level of paranoia. It's, it was good because it caused the Soviet Union to fail. It overspent on things. It couldn't keep up with us. We were extremely paranoid of the Soviet Union. And that was extremely led by the Republican Party. They, I mean, this this is McCarthy before this McCarthy, the Senator McCarthy in uh, talking about the Communist Party in the 60s and uh, black marks on Hollywood actors who could never work in the industry again because they were communist sympathizers. That was a Republican Party thing. That was the re- radical extreme end of the Republican Party was do not trust anything from Russia, even if it's just borscht. There's nothing good about it. Come forward. That was maintained all the way up through the fall of the Soviet Union until about six or seven years ago. And then very quietly, there was no fanfare here, it flipped. What happened? From a from an economist viewpoint, don't know, but it happens like that throughout history. And and it's one where, well, okay, that the friends are the enemies and the enemies are the friends. The Germans and the Russians, Russians were great allies until they were horrible enemies. What's going on? Well, this just happened, and I wanted to put the spotlight on it for just a second because the Republicans that are shutting things down, the, re, the radicals of the Republican Party are doing something completely opposite of the radicals of the Republican Party in the lifespan of voters. And it's fun to point this out because a lot of times the same voter was involved with the party the whole time and completely agrees with it. It's like a a shift in the political viewpoint of a whole party and all of its members that takes place over time. Fascinating. It's strange. It doesn't really have any bearing on the on the what's happening today. It's just interesting to note it as a shift historically. Uh, and now back to you on the insanity of a party fighting amongst itself to with no actual aim in sight to stop. Well, they have a name. Well, if when if if you look at the twenty people that are in the group that are saying they're going to fight the Speaker of the House, and you go back and examine their campaign speeches and literature, they were elected on the platform of break up and shut down the United States government. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're doing it, and as a result, the soldiers won't get paid at the beginning of the month. There's and there already are, massive numbers of senior military that haven't been promoted because right. they can't be. Uh, we just had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs retire. The, his uh, mm-hmm. uh, General Milley retired. Has, Miley, I think it Miley. is. Miley. Uh, amazing gentleman 
Uh, I have a great deal of respect for him, uh, and and I know a lot of people got very partisan about him on both sides. The Democrats hated him under Trump. The Republicans hated him under Biden. That means he was doing his job, apolitical to the max. His job is to obey the president, period, <laughs> unless it's an illegal well, order. And, and His job is to obey the president, but his oath is not to the president. It's to, it the, Constitution. to the Constitution of the United States. Correct. And that, so I, I have a great deal of respect for him. And I realize this is not going to fall well on the extreme party members out there. They're going to hear that as me being political. But I think that's this is why we have the system of government that we have. It worked. Um, but at the same time, we've had a tremendous amount of difficulty promoting someone to replace him. We we actually need to have someone doing that job. And it's I, I realize that's an odd thing, but we've delayed his retirement because the Republicans won't promote generals, won't promote senior, won't approve clearances. There's These things are just insane. Uh, that is, the general promotion block is in place because of one senator. senator. Yes. Superman, and he basically is, said he's going to leave it there. And and uh, his most recent remarks is we we have too many generals anyway. If you look at how many generals we had in World War One, when the number the military was much higher, uh, we have too many. We've got way way more than that now, and our number of military is smaller. And the answer to that is you got to know a lot more. This is not the World War One army. This is not a bunch of people handed handed rifles and thrown into ditches to go and shoot we've got a lot of very very advanced things that are coordinated with different parts of the military and there are there may be some bloating there but i wouldn't like to just end the bloating could by I, just stopping it all could i explain that yeah absolutely we don't try to keep an army or an armed forces large enough to fight on three major areas in the world it would be prohibitively expensive, but we are basically in the position where we need to be able to fight in several areas of the world. So what we do is we set up headquarters, for instance, in Europe, and there's a general in charge of that headquarters. And if there's a necessity to deploy large numbers of U.S. troops to Europe, which is always a threat, that headquarters takes control of the troops. It's already done the planning. It's already figured out the logistics. It's got everything ready to defend Europe under NATO. We have so those same troops in the United States for training are under a different headquarters. We also have to be able to deploy to places like Korea or Southwest Asia. And so headquarters are set up in those areas that create plans, work out the logistics so that when and if if and when we go into a place in the world with a bunch of soldiers, they will have a command group that's ready and has everything in place to do whatever our mission is there. As a result, we do have more generals than we had in World War II or World War I, but we need them. Uh, that was something that when I was in the Army, I couldn't understand why we needed so many generals, and then it finally got explained to me why we have to have the generals in the headquarters. Uh, and it isn't bloat. It's, for example, I'll give you an example. Let's just say a war broke out in Europe and we had to commit large number of troops to it because of NATO. A lot of troops in the United States, a lot of the divisions and the brigades in the United States would deploy to Europe where they would be under a four-star general and a headquarters commander, Usurer. And that four-star general was already there. He didn't get deployed yeah, and, there. He was already there and understands 
the right. ge- geography, the terrain has warehouses positioned for food mm-hmm. and for ammunition. All that stuff yeah. is prearranged. And they also have three-star generals in charge of sub-organization. Now, what would happen to all the generals in the United States? They would immediately start training troops because we would, if we were in full war, we would start bringing in a lot more troops. We start drafting again. There's a lot of things. The lessons learned in World War II have not been forgotten, thank God. And that is moving an entire headquarters with the army is a recipe for really screwing things up. Uh, And as a result, we have multiple headquarters around the world ready to receive the troops who've received uniform training on their equipment and so on. And the headquarters that stay back in the United States then turn around and continue to do training, only do training on new troops coming in. Uh, We've actually got a plan. It makes a great deal of sense. For example, one of the, the big issues is if North Korea attacks South Korea, we have a treaty obligation to field a lot of troops to stop them. Yeah. So we have a four-star general over there with the headquarters and subordinate three-star generals. We've got the same commitment to NATO. So we've got generals and generals over there. We've got the same, we have a large degree of obligation still in what we call the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf area. And Japan. Uh, <laughs> well, Japan, yeah, Japan and Korea are basically fall under the same heading. But uh, so we've got to have the ability to fight China, fight North Korea, uh, fight in Europe, and fight in the Middle East. So we basically got four sets of headquarters and sub-headquarters ready to receive troops so that we don't have everybody stumbling in there blind, not knowing what they're doing. Right. So from a perspective of the extreme that says we should only be in the United States, we shouldn't be giving any foreign aid to any other countries, we shouldn't be in any treaties with anyone else, we're strong enough, we should just hold up back on our little corner of the planet. What we just said will have absolutely no weight with you. However, if you understand that our economy is based, now hopefully you understand it more after the pandemic, our economy is not just based on us. We buy things from the rest of the world and we sell things to the rest of the world. And some of what we buy is stuff that we make into things that are better. And some of what we sell was made 100% by us. If you shut that off, you kill a big chunk of our economy. This is what sanctions are. This is why North Korea is not doing so well. It's why Iran is not progressing quickly. It's why Russia is suffering economically, because we've cut them off from the rest of the world. If we volunteer for that, I I mean, it sounds good. It sounds good like tariffs. We'll protect our own workers. We'll charge more for overseas stuff. But all that does is it means that if we're playing against the rest of the world on a home court, all of our practicing and all of our at-home games, the other team has a huge disadvantage Why does it have a disadvantage? Well, because their stuff is more expensive. Well, that means our team doesn't practice as hard. It doesn't work as hard. And when we, if you talk about capitalism, and this is a thing that is still uh, the the apple of the eye of the conservatives. This is why huge chunks of what we look at the Democrats and complain about is there. From the conservative perspective, capitalism is really important and free markets are still a big component there. I recognize that our last conservative president was not a free market person. Well, he was a free market person. He just wanted concessions first. But we never got back to the free market. And then the the reins got handed off to a Democrat who's also not a free market person. All of that stuff is self-imposed sanctions. And that's still going on. 
And who pays those sanctions? Well, the people that buy the goods, that's us, the US, that's a tax. And this is something that shocked me at the time under Trump. It doesn't shock me under Biden. This is what he's believed his whole life. When we talk about free trade, this is something, another big uh, observational shift. The Democrats and the Republicans seem to agree on this. We don't want free trade with the rest of the world. We want to protect our workers. That's a huge difference from what it used to be. Uh, And that's strange and kind of obvious but it's not being talked about as a reality, is that populism of American workers, America first, that's a generally Democrat union belief and a Republican blue-collar belief. It's, It's So nobody's got a monopoly there. Donald Trump went out to talk to the UAW, and so did Biden. So it's just interesting. And we've got to play some commercials. It's weird talking about political science and where we overlap and where we've shifted and all of that, but... Uh, We do actually have to play some commercials. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have emails waiting at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com. That's the personal wealth coach or T at PWC. And we'll be back on the other side of these vitally important announcements. You said you have a lot to talk about. So I'm going to hand it over to you. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, Go for it. Well, not only is capital leaving China. I say, I say leaving. It's not actually leaving China. The U.S. capital money invested has been flowing into China for about 20 years at a very high rate of speed. We've built a lot of buildings. We've bought a lot of equipment. I mean, United States companies have done that just as they did into Russia to a lesser degree. And they're now recognizing that sunk cost is sunk. It's gone. And they're beginning to disengage, but it's going to be very slow and it's going to take several years. The big thing that's happening is the capital is no longer flowing into China. Now, that is where things get bumpy. China is having some difficulty finding capital, which is one of the reasons their economy isn't having any trouble with inflation, but rather with deflation, and they have a potential for a recession in front of them, which they are vigorously trying to head off. So where is the capital going to go if we're going to continue to grow? If the United States is growing quickly, and it is, and we don't have the capacity in the United States to grow quickly, that means we need to grow somewhere else. Mexico and Vietnam are probably the two biggest. Um, Canada has gotten a big boost as well. Right. India to India. We've already had a lot of growth going on in India, but basically South Asia and Mexico are the emerging markets where we're seeing capital flowing in and people being employed and things being made. Um, India doesn't have a particularly stable government. Obviously, there's problems with uh, the government in Mexico. But one of the things that you should that needs to be borne in mind here is proximity. The closer a country is to the United States, the cheaper it is to get goods manufactured in that country into the United States. And I think there's going to continue to be a concerted effort to side as much manufacturing as we can in northern Mexico. And that is not taking jobs away from the United States. The problem we're running into in the United States is we don't have enough people to work in the factories. We simply don't have the population. Our population is no longer growing fast. A lot of the people who work in the factories at the automakers and the people who makes make parts for automobiles and airplanes and whatever else in the United States, they're having a lot of trouble finding employees and the average age or the median a mean even the median age of their employees on these on this equipment is getting quite old so we've got a two-pronged effort that we'll see emerge more and more during this decade in my opinion one we will see more 
in northern Mexico, more factories and so on in northern Mexico, which incidentally may have an interesting side effect. We may find some way to stabilize the government in northern Mexico. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do it, but it wouldn't be the first time in our history we've done something like that. Well, I, mean, uh, I can throw something in there. The marketplace is definitely going to help here. There, there has been a migration in Mexico to the factories in northern Mexico. And there's also been a market for the drugs that come through Mexico from South America and that originate in Mexico. And the Mexicans have really taken over that. Uh, the cartels in Mexico have taken over the other cartels for, for lots of reasons, but anarchy doesn't work well long term. So the gangs down south didn't do as well as the semi-government of Mexico and their gangs. And I know that's weird. As other parts of the economy become stronger than the drug market, and that's happening right now. It's already transpired. It's already occurred that it's it, you can get a job at a factory. You don't have to go work at a drug plant. Then as that occurs, the marketplace is going to step in and protect that. The more we shift factory working to northern Mexico, the more stable the government there will be so long as it's being done correctly. And that's, the, I think, where you're talking about how do we stabilize that? The government there has to get stabilized. There's a lot of corruption. Right. Um, but the reality is that they are so close to the United States, we do have an influence on what's happening there. I'm not sure that it's I, ethical, but we have the influence. I would not be terribly surprised to see us take, at some point in the next decade, a direct hand in intervention against the cartels and warlords in northern mexico yeah i i don't we're not there yet but i wouldn't be too surprised to see that it has happened um, in the past i mean yes we, we make it twice. very very romantic but pancho villa was a bandit that was disrupting trade and so the united states government invaded mexico i am not yes. suggesting that we invade mexico just a side note that would be a really really not good thing right now but uh, right Working with Mexico would be a, a compromise there. And I think there's, there's a lot of effort to do that. Uh, it, it deteriorated under the previous uh, administration because of some of the things the president was saying about Mexicans' broad stroke. But I think it's coming back now. The, uh, the, so we're seeing, we're seeing some offshoring going on. But the second prong to that solution, and I think it is probably ultimately going to be the biggest one, is again paralleled in the 1920s. In the 1920s, it was a huge displacement of workers from farms, an immense displacement of workers, as the internal combustion engine increased the productivity of farms and replaced people. A tractor with its implements easily replaces five or six farmhands. And that the new factories that are being built around the country are very, very highly motivated. No, I said motivated. Very, very highly automated. And as the software and AI capacity continues to grow through the decade, I think you'll see more and more and more of that. And that will be ultimately our good solution to the problem, which we'll work on becoming more and more that way through this through this entire century. I think it's going to again the internal combustion engine, which is ironically being phased out at this point um by 2050 there probably won't be a lot of gasoline powered cars to be found anywhere and um we see that that tremendous disturbance that was caused in the 1920s by automobiles by the way which ultimately led in many ways to world war ii because germany got ahead of the power curve on this new equipment and could do blitzkrieg and 
at the beginning of World War II, and this is this thing a lot of people didn't realize, the Polish army, when, when Germany invaded Poland using mechanized vehicles and early tanks, lightweight tanks, the Polish army still had mounted cavalry right. on horses. Just, just to make it uh, apparent that they still weren't weak, um, they destroyed more tanks in Poland than the French did in France. And the French yeah, well, had a more mechanized military. Uh, they, so they the, did a lot of the, the military of Poland on the backs of horses destroyed more tanks than. Um, but those were very, very primitive, very early tanks. What, right. But what we're seeing, and by the way, we're seeing this happen again. War in again between Ukraine and Russia is becoming has become already radically different than anyone imagined it would be. The predominance of drones in warfare is astonishing a lot of people. Uh, and, and we'll see this accelerate as drones get smarter and smarter and this goes on. So this is the, the, the 1920s and the 2020s are going to be stages of disruption where a lot of people are put out of work. But because our population is not growing really, really fast, uh, it won't be as disruptive. And you are listening to The Personal Wealth Coach. Oh. Jeff and Jake McClure. And uh, see, yeah, we said our names together. We, we are very proud of the fact that we can occasionally say our names. It's, it's quite an achievement. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we're very special people. We, we have a whole club of us. Um, you may reach us as voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week. Locally, the number is. 254-947-1111. Or toll-free 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can uh, read our newsletters, come out every Friday, sign up for them, get them directly. You can uh, contact us through the contact form. You can listen to radio programs going back a long ways. Our podcasts are available anywhere podcasts are available uh and you can uh email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com until next hour this has been the personal wealth coach